weeping as I'm sitting here listening to so many voices sing praise to our God. I'm just encouraged because I remember sitting here with my wife a couple years ago, and we'd be sitting here right about right over there, and I remember holding her hand, and we would both be choked up because I told her, God's got a city for us. At the time, we didn't know where it was, and he's going to take us there, and he's going to create worshipers of God like this that go after him. They're going to serve him and love him. We're going to see people get saved. We're going to see people come to know the Lord as Savior, and we're going to be so excited. And I come back to tell you, after two years, I can tell you that's exactly what God is doing in Denver, Colorado. Amen. And just to give you a little history so you can get a picture as to what it's like, what's going on out there. About two years ago now is when we moved out there. We had about 14 people on our launch team. As a matter of fact, I remember when it grew to 18. We had 18 people sitting around a billiards table uh, in this room, in this little billiards room. And I knew four of those people were never coming back. And I'm like, we have 14 people and we're launching in 12 weeks. What are we going to do? And God, by His grace, has been so faithful. And I can tell you this, if it were not for your prayers and your financial support, we would have never launched when we did. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here. I really mean that. And if it weren't for the leadership and the love that we had, we wouldn't have been able to get done the things that we've been able to get done. Uh, this summer, we've seen a boost in attendance. We meet in a high school in the Denver area called Cherry Creek High School, right in the Tech Center. It's actually about eight miles from where you read about that shooting was a couple weeks ago. Uh, that's where we meet. And um, God has been doing an awesome thing. We have about 350 people that were averaging coming on the weekends now, and uh, it continues to grow. We're excited about what God is doing, but more importantly than the numbers, what we're seeing God do is He's changing lives. He's putting marriages back together. I have a buddy who uh, I've known for 30 years, and uh, it's hard for me to talk about. I have a buddy that I know for 30 years that lives out there that uh, did, not, did not know the Lord when we moved there, and his marriage was falling apart. It was miserable. His life was miserable. And I remember talking to him. I think he came to the first launch team meeting that we had, um, having too many beers from his golf game that he had. And I was going to have to sit him down and say, don't drink before you come to launch team. And uh, <laughs> and uh, in our very first service, I remember getting a text from him after the service. said, thanks so much for coming. You guys are awesome. And he had sent it out to a bunch of guys. And I asked him what was going on. He got saved in our very first service. Yeah. And... Um, God has put his marriage back together, and I got to baptize him about a year ago, and that's just one of a myriad of stories that I could tell you. And God is at work in Denver the same way that he's at work here, and it's a privilege to come back and be able to present God's word to a group of people that I love with my whole heart. Uh, it's great to be in Peoria. Uh, it's a city where I know so many of you, and it's been such a blessing, but it's so great to be part of a life-giving church where I know God is at work. And so from our heart to yours, we're so grateful. I sent greetings from my wife as well when we went out. My uh, my daughter was three and my son was one. My daughter just started kindergarten this week, so we've been crying all week. And, you know, it's been cool. My son is three and we're doing great. And uh, we just so much appreciate uh, this church and who you are and your investment in our lives. And we love you very, very much. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning that God would, uh, through his word, as he always is faithful, uh, to teach us what he wants to transform us. Father in heaven. We love you. We bless you. We praise you for who you are, for all that you are, for all you're going to do. And Lord, we believe that your word is living and active. You say it is. We've experienced that. And we just ask through your Holy Spirit this morning that every person's life in this room would be touched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would change us and make us more like yourself. Lord, we just want you to know that we love you. We bless you. Bless your holy name. And we just thank you for this privilege this morning. In Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said... Amen. As I was coming into town last night, I was recalling a certain situation that happened to me when I was a 
junior in high school. I had just gotten my driver's license. I was 16 years old, so excited. I had one of those Delta 88s. Remember those cars that were like boats or you needed like a boat license to drive? That's what I had. And um, I remember driving and I had to pick up a couple friends before baseball practice. So I took off for uh, practice and I remember I had, I went to Richwoods High School. I had to leave going away from Richwoods High School and university to go pick up my friend and I was late. And so I was a new driver, and I was late, and I was trying to hurry things up, and um, I was watching, and ended up, as I was going down by University and Glen Avenue, I got stuck behind a city bus. And I was watching all the advanced drivers weave around the bus, and weave around the bus, and weave around the bus, but I was thinking, do I have time to weave around the bus and still make a right turn or not? And I didn't know, but I just got impatient. And so I began to weave around the bus, and I was going, I was stepping on it. Now, in driver's ed, they teach you a couple of things. And one of the things they teach you is that when you change lanes, you're supposed to do three things. Check your rearview mirror, check your side mirror, and then what's the third thing you're called to do? Head check. You just turn your head real quick to see if there's anything in what's called your what? Blind spot. Don't forget this. It's really important. And on that day, I was uh, not really doing any of the three things. And as fate would have it, on University Street... Back in around 1986 or so, I collided with a city bus because I did not follow the rules. And to tell you what kind of friends I had at the time, my friend in the car was like, hey, do you care if I just go to Brian's house and just make it to practice because we're going to be late? So here I am by myself, and it was late practice that day, and university's pretty busy around 5 o'clock. I was the guy that stopped traffic so that everybody that was coming had to weave around me looking like, who in the world would hit a bus? You know, and you're standing there like the idiot that's it's me, and then you got three people on the bus that were testifying against me, and all this, like, what are you doing? You're making my day miserable. It's a miserable day, all because I forgot one little thing. Head check. Just head check. One little thing. Now, there's so many things in life that we can be forgetful on, right? I mean, it, it's easy that we can walk out of the house and we forget the things that we need or we leave our keys on the kitchen counter or we forget to pick up our Bible on our way to church. Or There's any number of things. But when it comes to spiritual things, there's things that we can forget that are pretty significant. But one thing that I see, especially as being a pastor that we forget all the time, is that God wants us to have ownership of his love. And if we forget the fact that God loves us, and we don't take ownership of the fact God loves us, it changes everything. And what ends up happening is one of two things. Because for many of you sitting here, if I were telling you, I'm going to talk about the love of God today, some of you would be like, I was when I was growing up, which is this. Yeah, I get it. That's his job. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. So I've gone to church since I was four. We had felt boards about it. Um, I know this stuff. Why wouldn't he love me? I'm a pretty good person. But then there's another group of people that sit here and say, yeah, I I know he supposedly loves me, but I know myself too well to know that I know he really doesn't like me. And while he has to take me and it's because it's his job, I really don't feel loved by him. And both views are completely wrong. Because a view that says, I know that God loves me because that's his job leads to pride and arrogance where I think the reason that I relate to God is because I'm so good. And the other view is wrong because it leads to this insecurity that says God's love is not great enough to love a person like me. And what I find is that in a congregation of this size, many people sit there with both of those perverted views. And so today I want to talk to you about the love of God and how it is you can have ownership of it in your life. And to do this this morning, I want to look in the letter of 1 John. 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John right at the back of your Bible. Chapter 4. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures this morning, uh, one of the guys would be happy to pass them out to you. Just raise your hand and uh, they will give you a copy of that. 
1 John chapter 4. And I wanted to let you know this morning, we may not get through all of these verses, and I'm okay with that. Because at the end of the day, my goal from this time is that God's Holy Spirit would speak to you in such a way that you would take ownership of His love before you leave this building this morning. Okay? 1 John chapter 4. Here's how John starts in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now let's just stop right there for a second. John starts by saying what? Beloved. Uh, he says that throughout his book here. You can circle that. I have it underlined in my Bible. Beloved. What does that mean? I mean, as a casual reader of Scripture, you might see the word beloved and think, oh yeah, that's one of those romantic words. Because in our culture, love has become something that's a feeling. We just got back from, uh, from Disney World, and everywhere my, my little daughter went, they would greet her like this. Oh, hey, princess. Hey, princess. Oh, you look so great. We, we think love is like that. Beloved. Now, when John writes to his audience, this is what he calls them. Beloved. Is it because John was just in love with those people? You guys are so awesome. Like, we, we think of love as a feeling. Like, if I say something like, man, I love that guy. It's, it's probably because he's got some characteristic about him that I really appreciate. Or if a gal says, man, I just love him so much. It's probably because he has some attributes that are lovable. But that is not what the word means. Beloved means highly favored. It means esteemed. It means chosen. It means divinely loved ones. It means those that are worthy of God. Some of your Bibles might read, Dear friends. It's a greater word than just my feeling for somebody. It is John writing to his audience telling them this. Listen, you're chosen by God. You're divinely loved. You're worthy of His love. And because we share the same dad, I'm calling you by what your dad calls you. It's a, it's a really big word. And John, of all people, should be the one to talk about this, right? Because I find John's gospel really funny. Because John, many times, even though he wrote the book, he wrote this about himself. When he refers to himself, do you know how he referred to himself? He referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I find that kind of interesting. I mean, if you had 12 friends that were all hanging out with Jesus, and you're penning a book inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you're writing about it, then there was Peter, and then there's the disciple that he loved. You know, there was Joe, there was Brian, there was Jeff, and then there was the disciple Jesus loved. Like me. Did Jesus love John more than the other disciples? Did he love John more than Peter? Did he love John more than Andrew? No way he did. What was the difference? See, I believe that John writes that inspired by the Spirit because there's one thing that John understood in his gospel that the others didn't grab a hold of at the time that they did later, and that was this. John had ownership of the love of Jesus in his life. He was the beloved disciple. He was saying when he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, he was like, I get this. I know Jesus loves me. And I want to give you five advantages from John's gospel this morning. If you'll just flip back with me, I can show you. If you just want to write the verses down, that's fine. But in John chapter 13, John chapter 13, verse 25, I'm going to give you five advantages of what it is to have the ownership of God in your life. So that we can understand what this beloved means. To see that, do you really have it? Because, you know, the the thing you have to understand is this, that God loves His children. He loves His children. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, He loves you. You're His chosen ones. You're His esteemed. You are divinely loved. 
John understood this. The night that Jesus was betrayed, in John chapter 13, it talks about it. And he, he says in John chapter 13, verse 21, I truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And in this account, as well as all the others, they begin looking around at each other as a loss of not knowing as to who he was speaking. And many of them around the table begin to ask, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I the one? I find it interesting nobody looked at Judas and was like, I knew it! I knew that. I mean, they didn't know. Because on the outside, he had this veneer of, Yeah, I'm loved by God. I'm one of those two. But Jesus said, One of you is a devil. One of you on the inside doesn't own my love, nor the love of my dad. Peter was like, being the Peter that he is, like, we've got to find this out. Leans over to John and says, ask him who it is. Now, we have too many Leonardo da Vinci pictures of the Last Supper. We have this rectangular table with all the disciples behind it. What it would have been is more like a U-shape with Jesus at the head. And John would be reclining right to his right because the table would have been about a foot off the ground. And Peter leans over and, t- and, and verse 24, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. In other words, John, ask him. And so John kind of would have rolled over and with his head in Jesus, right around Jesus' chest. And he leaned back on Jesus' bosom and he said to him, Lord, who is it? He didn't say, Lord, is it me? He didn't say, am I the one? I know I'm not. I know you love me. Who is it? And, and here's, what I, here's what I see from that. John, the one he loved. When, when, when you know that you're loved by God, you can hear him clearly. You want to hear what God has to say. See, a lot of us say we love God, but we don't want to hear what God has to say. As a matter of fact, many of us come into church like, I hope God speaks to me today. I hope He does. But deep down in our hearts, we don't want God to speak to us because what if He asks us to do something or become something that we don't want to become? That was not the case with John. But what is it? Who is it? Just just tell me. Just, just speak to me clearly. Tell me what I need to hear. See, a lot of us give lip service to the fact we want to hear God where deep down we really don't want to hear Him. Because we're afraid that if we actually heard what He had to say, we wouldn't like it or it would alter our life. And we're way too caring about us than we are about owning the love of God in our life. The story continues as Jesus goes to be betrayed and carried off and beaten. And Peter told Jesus the night that he was betrayed, he said, Lord, hey, listen, I just got to tell you something. Um... A lot, of guys, a lot of these guys say they're for you. I want to let you know something. Even if all others fall away, I never will. Because I'm your man. I'm loyal. Jesus tells him this. Hey, before the rooster crows, hey, before tomorrow morning, you'll betray me three times. And Peter does and goes out and weeps bitterly. We don't see anybody else around the cross except for one of the disciples. You know who we see? We see John. John's there. John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. What does he say? Jesus looks down from the cross, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Who's standing at the cross? Uh, The one that Jesus loved. The one who had ownership of his love. If you have ownership of Jesus' love, you'll remain with Jesus even when he goes through adversity. Even when you go through tough times, even when things aren't pleasant, if you own the love of God in your life, you can handle about anything. Have you ever had a situation like that? I remember a girl that was in my youth group back down in Dallas years ago that was diagnosed with systemic lupus and had to take steroids and ballooned up, you know, 40 pounds or something for a teenage girl. That was a a really big deal. She didn't know if she was going to live or die, but she would always be in the front row of our youth group and she would always be worshiping with her hands raised above her head. Prayed for healing in her life so many times over and over and over and over again. And to my knowledge, uh, she's never been fully healed. And I remember talking to her one night and I said, do you realize that you encourage me by seeing your faith. 
She's like, Jeff, she's like, I want God to heal me so bad. But I know that if he doesn't and he takes me, that I'll be healed at that very moment. And I'm cool with that. And I said, did you know what? I said, your faith encourages me more than all the others because you're going through all this stuff and you still love God. See, people that know that they're loved by God can handle a lot because their focus is on Him. They can go through all sorts of trials and adversity because I know God loves me. He's not punishing me. He loves me. And I'm going to use this for His glory. Another advantage is found in John chapter 20, verse 8. In John chapter 20, verse 8, remember, the women came from the tomb and said, Jesus is alive, and Peter and John have a foot race, and John wins. And when Peter gets in there, he barges in and goes in and looks at the tomb. And then in verse 8, it says, So the other disciple whom had come first to the tomb, which was John, then also entered, and he saw and what? Believed. See, when John saw that Jesus had risen, immediately John's like, I believe. He said he was going to do it. He did. Because verse 9 says, for, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. I mean, up until that time, they didn't get it. But when John saw the tomb's empty, immediately John's like, I believe that. I know. Why? Because I, I know that I'm loved by God. I'm, I'm intimately acquainted with him. I can have great faith in what God says because I believe what he says. That's who John was. Now, the other disciples needed some evidence, especially Thomas wanted to touch his hands and feet, and that was fine, and Jesus blessed that. But Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. John believed the moment he saw that the tomb was empty. One of the advantages of being loved by God and experiencing his love is you can exhibit great faith. Notice this after Jesus rises from the dead in John chapter 21, verse 7. Jesus is alive. He starts walking on the beach, and in verse 7... And the night when they hadn't caught anything. And do you ever find this funny? Did the disciples ever catch a fish without Jesus? I mean, they were horrible, horrible fishermen. No wonder they left their nets. Um, like, so anyway, verse 7. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Why? John was loved by Jesus. He, he was recognizing him. John was looking for him. John believed that he had risen from the dead. John's looking for Jesus. And when John sees the miracle that Jesus performed, because he knew they weren't going to catch any fish on their own, he's like, it's Jesus. He was looking for him. People that know that they're loved by God are on the lookout for him. If you have ownership of God's love in your life, you're on the lookout for him. You're, you're, you're yearning for the day that you're going to meet him. You're, you're looking forward to the day of the rapture. You're more excited about Christ's return than you are about setting up your financial goals for the next 20 years. You, if you're loved by God, you're looking forward because you know that's going to be the greatest day in history is the day that you meet Jesus face to face. That's what John was doing. And then I find it really interesting at the end of John's gospel, when Peter's asking him, hey Lord, what's up? And, you know, what about him? John chapter 21, verse 20. Jesus called him to follow him, and Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And see Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I mean, Jesus was trying to explain to Peter what kind of death he was going to have and what was going to go on. And Peter's like, hey, what about this one? What about this one? And John, hey, Jesus said, whatever, whatever I do with him is not a big deal. If, I, if, I remain, if he remains till I come, what, what is that to you? It doesn't matter. John didn't care. John wasn't asking what was going to happen. Why? Because someone who owns the love of God in their life, someone who is the beloved of God, trusts God's plan in the future for their life. 
God, whatever you have, I don't need to ask about it. I don't need to ask what's coming next. I don't need to ask about him or her or the next guy. I know that you love me, so whatever way you take me, I'm cool with that. You take me through the valleys. You take me through the hills. I'm comfortable. I trust you. It's awesome when people love God and have the ownership of God's love in their life. And God's love is constant. God's love for his children is constant. I mean, I think about my own kids and how much I absolutely love them and what I'm willing to do, and it pales in comparison for God's love for us. And the reason that we have a really hard time grasping it is because we think of love as something that we have to do or earn, right? I mean, if we say something, you know, like we were talking about, like, I love this guy or I love her or this guy's a great employee, I love him or whatever, it's because they've done something or because they exhibit something. But that's not the way God loves us. God loves us in spite of us. God loves us as a result of His Son, which we'll see in a second. And we see this played out in the life of the Father and the Son. I mean, if you want to study Jesus and you want to know anything about Jesus, just study His relationship with His dad. He said, I only, I only do what my, I see my dad doing. Even when he was going to the cross, he was calling out to his dad. He followed his dad all the way. I mean, he said, Lord, Father, if there's another way, I'll go another way. But I want to do what you want, Dad. I mean, that's what he was. But remember Jesus' baptism, what the Father did? The Father begins speaking as the Son comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit remains on Jesus as a dove. And a voice booms from heaven. And what does the Father say? This is my what? Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says the same thing in Jesus' transfiguration in Mark 9. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He's beloved. He's chosen. He's special. He's divinely loved. He's worthy of my love. That's who my Son is. Listen to Him. Pay attention to Him. He belongs to me. And this is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Because as we understand God's love for us, and many of us don't experience that in our life because we think, well, there's no way God could love me like that. I mean, Jeff, you don't know my life, and you don't know the sins that I've sinned, and you don't know the things that I've done. I always find it kind of funny when I come back and preach in Peoria, because every major sin I sinned was within a 15-mile radius of this pulpit. (laughs) Right? And if you would have done a rewind 25 years ago, you'd be like, there's no way that guy's going to be preaching in our city anytime soon. Right? But we're not divinely loved and called and chosen because we're good. The Bible says there's no one good. There's no one righteous. There's no one that understands God. None of you here are worthy of it on your own. But God wants you to own it. Beloved. 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 What's he tell us to do? I mean, if we're going to take the ownership that we're his children and we're going to experience the beloved, then... How do you know if you've really got it? I mean, how do I know I'm not giving lip service? Like, Jeff, I think I got it, but I'm not sure. How do you How do you know? This is how you know. You know that your understanding of God's love for you by how you demonstrate that love to others. In other words, there's a litmus test for this love. If you truly believe that God loves you, if you truly have ownership in your life, it'll be flushed out in the way that you love other people, especially those who are believers. Beloved, what? Let us love one another. Why? For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who doesn't love doesn't know God. Why? Because God is love. In other words, if you're experiencing the belo- if you are the beloved, if you're experiencing that in your life, if you're trusting Him, if you have ownership of it, then guess what? It'll flesh itself out in the way that you treat other people, especially those who are believers. I mean, Galatians six verse ten spells it out this way. So then, while we have opportunity. 
Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, do you know how hard it is sometimes, how easy it is to like, well, I love that guy over there, and I love her, and everything's cool. It's like when you get into a church, and everybody's awesome, until you get into an impact group, and then they're not so awesome anymore because you know them. If people are laughing, they're they're laughing at you, okay? If you're not laughing. Um, That's a fact. You know why we have some of our most heated arguments with the people that we love? It could be our spouse, it could be our kids, it could be the people that we work with. Why? Because we see all their warts. Beloved, if you're truly loved by God, let us love one another. If you understand God's love for you in what He's done on your behalf, it makes it pretty easy to love other people. Let me give you a classic example, and my wife wouldn't mind me sharing this with you either. When we first got married, we loved each other. I mean, we were perfect for each other. I remember we went and saw a comedian before we were married, and the comedian was like picking on us because we were engaged, and he said, now are you guys like really alike or really different? And I said, we're, we're, we're totally alike. And he said, wrong answer, my friend. That's what he said. I'm like, oh, he doesn't know us. We're like totally like perfect for each other. And we were until we got married. <laughs> right? Because when you're really close to somebody, even when you love them and you align, guess what? You have two different genders and two different communication styles and two different backgrounds and two sinners living under the same roof with two different levels of expectation. And all of a sudden, things aren't going as well as you expect. And I remember early on in our marriage, I, just got, I was frustrated one day and I was praying to God and I was like, God, man, I'm just frustrated. I don't, I don't feel that Kim respects me the way that she needs to respect me. I don't feel like she gives me the attention and time that I deserve. And I, I wasn't even done laying out my complaint before the Lord. He's like, oh, Jeff, I know exactly how that feels in my relationship with you. You don't respect me the way I think I deserve to be respected. And I really don't feel like I'm getting the time from you that would demand my attention. And why don't we work on that? And I remember as we, I began to work on that and I began to experience God's love in my life and how much he loved me in spite of who I was. Everything began to change in our marriage. Why? Because I wasn't out trying to correct my wife. I wasn't out trying to fix her. Many of us as Christians spend our whole life, we have wayward prodigal kids, or we have a spouse that's difficult to live with, or we have a guy at work that we have a hard time with, or we sit on opposite sides of the church because we just can't get along with that person. Why? Because you truly don't understand that you're the beloved. Because you would understand, if you did, that Christ went a lot farther to redeem you than you'd have to walk across the room to reconcile that relationship. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount made it so clear. If, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you're bringing your gift to the altar, and there you realize that your brother has something against you, what does he say? First, go be reconciled with your brother, then come bring the gift. In other words, if you said today, you know what, my wife and I, we've been praying and we're going to give a, a one month salary to the, to the building program here at Harvest. And that's a huge sacrifice for us. I don't even know how we're going to do it. And we brought that check and we prayed over it. And you enter this building and you see somebody you have a grudge against, Jesus would say, before you bring that check, go reconcile that relationship, then come give the check. Why? Because you demonstrate the fact that you love God by how you love other people. And see, the world, have you ever heard this? What does a lot of the world say about Christians? Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Why do they say that? Because what they are not seeing is Christians demonstrating the love that they're hearing about on Sunday morning. And see, if we're not demonstrating it and living it, then how's anybody ever going to have a picture of what that looks like? How are we going to love others? What's that going to look like? And that's what, this is what the scripture is talking about. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. goes on to say, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, what does that mean? 
The one who does not know does not know God. Knowing God means to experience the person of. If you are not loving other people, it means you truly haven't experienced the person of Jesus Christ. Or you're not experiencing Him at the level that He wants you to experience Him yet. Because if you are, it is easy, by God's grace, to love people that are unlovable. How do you know if this is working in your life? How do you know if your love is floundering? I'll give you three ways to know if your love is floundering. Three things that would be in your life if it's floundering. Number one is this, it's unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. I, I, I find it a dichotomy for you to call yourself a Christian, which is totally based on the forgiveness of God in your life, and then you not be able to forgive somebody else. It, it's an impossibility. Because you know no matter what that person has done to wrong you, when you stand before God and you plead your case for how miserable that person was, God's case against you and your rebellion against him is a lot larger. Okay? Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Number two is this. Bitterness and resentment. Oh, I forgave him, all right. My dad was this way. I forgave him. I forgave him 18 years ago. I hate him. He makes me mad. I resent everything about him. I hope I never see him again. But I I totally forgave him, brother. Bitterness and resentment. It stews. And the third one that you kind of know if you're you're not experiencing the love of God is this. Gossip. Gossip. Where you begin to talk about others and try to rally people to your way of thinking to let them know how bad that other person is. And it can come out in the most spiritual of ways. Hey, dude, we got to pray for Joe. I mean, do you know what he did? That guy is so miserable, and he did this, 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 and this. Let's pray for him. Okay, i got to go. I don't have time to pray now, but we'll talk later. Click. That's gossip in every way. It's when things start bleeding out of you that it's clear that you don't like somebody else. Because if you're the beloved, then you're called to love one another. Because why? Because love is from God, and everyone who loves, he's born of God. He knows God. He's been born again. He's been bought with his blood. And that's what it is. See, God loves all of his kids. You've got to understand that, you know, many of us, even in the Christian community, you know how we'll do this? It's not an individual, we'll do it against another church. We'll speak about another church in town, we'll say, do you know what their pastor's doing? Do you know the church I came from? Here's what they're about. We gossip. But here's what you need to understand. God loves the people that he's redeemed. He loves them. It's kind of like me in relation with my son. We were, we were at Chick-fil-A not too long ago. And my son comes out of the play area. You don't have a Chick-fil-A yet, do you? Soon? You're going to see lines a mile long. But anyway, we're at Chick-fil-A, and my son comes out of the playground area, and he's crying. And I said, what's wrong? He's like, Daddy, they're they're, they're mean to me in there. So I just get up from the table, and I start walking with my three-year-old son, holding his hand and walking in. Now, I'm not a mean person. I'm not a fighter, but I can take most three-year-olds if I need to. And, and I just stood there with him. And I asked him, what's going on? And he started pointing. And all I needed to do was stand there. I'm like, okay, well, I'm sure they're going to play nice with you now. Let's just go do our thing. And I just stood there. He never got bothered the whole time. See, that's how God loves his people. That's how God loves his children. So if, you know, I can say things to my son. I can discipline my son. I can, I can chasten my son. I can help him become something. But I don't want you to do that in my son. I don't want you to speak bad about him. And our relationship in the body of Christ, that's what God wants us to have. God wants us to be known by our love. That's how people are going to know that we believe what we believe. They'll know we are Christians by our, not our preaching, 
Not our great worship, not our impact groups. No, we're Christians by the way we love. I mean, the greatest tangible way of sharing the gospel is living it out in such a way where even when people mistreat you or people see you're going through a tough time or there's bad relationships, what? You love one another. You love one another. Because see, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment that leads to gossip needs to be reconciled. See, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the reconciliation. Jesus did more than just forgive us. Yes, he did forgive. All of us who have trusted in him, he's forgiven. He's put a stamp on it through his blood. He'll call us his children. He loves us. But he did more than that. He didn't just come to earth for a kid like me that when I was 18 gave my life to and said, I forgive Jeff, but man, I hate what he's done up until now. And man, he better be good because if he ever screws up again, I'm done with him. No, the Bible says that he reconciled me to himself. Which means not only did he forgive me and wipe it clean, but he restored the relationship so that as long as I'm walking in it, we're good to go. You hear what I'm saying? The Bible says as long as it is up to you, live in peace with each other. Now, I know there's some situations where you can do your best to live at peace with other people and they're not going to live at peace with you. I get that. That's, that's real. But as long as it's up to you... I mean, if you're standing before the Lord and saying, God, as long as it's up to me, I've extended forgiveness. I've tried to reconcile. I am not bitter. I am not talking about them anymore. I'm going to leave them in your hands. I love them. And if they ever wanted to have a relationship with me, they could have it for your sake. Um, That's what it looks like. That's how you demonstrate love to other people, especially those in the church. Because how sad it would be to come to a church and be in a place where we talk about the love of God and experience the love of God and have His presence among us to have people bicker and fighting and unforgiveness and talking bad about each other, doing the very thing that God says, don't do. Jesus tells us about this kind of love in the Sermon on the Mount too. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, a non-Christian is not capable of loving the way God calls us to love. They're just not. Because we as Christians are called to love our enemies. We're called to pray for those who persecute us. We're called to do everything we can to forgive them. And guess what? God is so good about putting you in situations where these things get tested. Did you know that? I mean, all of us as Christians sometimes want to shirk these things off and be like, Oh man, I'm in this situation now with this boss. He's horrible. He's terrible. God, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. God didn't get me out of here. I'm quitting that job and going here. Guess what God's going to do? He'll bring somebody else. Because God's working on your heart and your ability to love Him and demonstrate that love to one another. That's why God puts you around people, sometimes, that are not your best friends. I I know it's true from our church. In our impact groups, we, we have people, Oh man, I can't wait for impact groups to start. It's awesome. It's great. And then like three weeks later, they're in my office. I'm like, we just don't gel with these people. I'm like, that's why you're there. So go have fun and come back and see me in here when you guys are best buddies again. Because when you're centered on mission and you love each other the way Christ loves His church and you recognize who you are, God's put you there to build friendships with people that you otherwise wouldn't build them with so that when the world looks in, they would say, well, what's the common denominator of these people? I mean, that guy's rich and this guy's poor and this guy's a different skin color and they don't even like that kind of group of people and they vote different on the ballot on the, in November. And what's, what's up? They all seem to love each other. What is it? It's Jesus. Because that's the only way it's possible. That's why the scripture goes on and tells us that. Notice what he says. Not only does God love his children, and not only do you demonstrate that by how you love others, but notice what he says. Where do you get that kind of love? He tells us. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. How was God's manifest love manifested in us? Through his only begotten son. He didn't have two. He didn't have Jesus and the devil. He had an only begotten son. The eternal son of God from the father. How did he demonstrate it? By sending him to the earth so that what? We who were dead might live. Ephesians 2.1 says, For while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God, God forgave you. He, the, the gospel is not about making better people, good people better or making bad people good. It's about taking those of us who are dead and making us alive. That's the hope we have. That's what John wrote about. That's what all the gospel writers are writing about. And then he goes on and says this. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. I mean, I talk to people sometimes, they'll say, Man, I've loved God, I've loved God ever since I was a young kid. The Bible would say, No, you didn't. The Bible would say, From the time that you were born, you've loved one person alone, and that's yourself. And your own agenda, and your own drive, and who you are. But God demonstrated His love for you, even while you were doing that. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, on a death mission to die in your place. That's what love is. Not that you loved God, but that he loved you. Not that you were going after God, but he was coming to rescue you. Not that you were doing great things for him, but he was working out a great plan for you. And this is love. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is deliverance of wrath. It's turning away God's wrath. I mean, every year in Israel, the high priest would take blood in and offer it before the Lord and would offer this blood sacrifice in between God, the perfect God, and the broken law that all of his people had broken and offered blood to be the turning away of God's wrath because of the sin of the people. And what did Jesus come do? He came and became the blood. He came and became the propitiation. The reason that God's wrath gets removed from our lives is because of Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no other way to turn away God's wrath. See, many of us that grew up in church, and I was one of them, believed that I was going to heaven because I was a pretty good guy and my good outweighed my bad. And I worked pretty hard, and at least I thought I did. But the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says, you know what? In your own mind, Jeff, you may have considered yourself a good guy. And maybe you could even rally some other people that would say that your good outweighed your bad. But at the end of the day, compared to God's awesome, holy, righteous, true judge of the universe that he is, you're miserable. You're spent. That's why this word beloved is so important. I mean, in different histories of the church, God has swung kind of from the picture of the sovereign ruling judge, sinners in the hands of an angry God, to I am a friend of God. And if anything, we've kind of pushed the envelope this way, and there's a huge balance there. I mean, yes, Jesus said, I have called you my friends. That's a truth. But what's also very true is God is holy, righteous, untouchable, something completely other, something we couldn't even touch. And if we saw him face to face, it wouldn't be like, hey, buddy, what's up? We would fall on our face. That's why at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, I love the song by Mercy Me that came out a few years ago. I can only imagine what it will be like. Will I dance? Will I fall? Will I stumble? I'll tell you what you'll do. Bam! On your face. That's exactly what will happen. Because God's huge. He's terrifying. That's why it says fear the Lord. And fear the Lord really means this. Fear the Lord. I mean, he's awesome. He's mighty. If he was unleashed, he would consume you. I mean, we, we, we should approach him with just, okay, you're sure I can come? He said, yeah. Not only can you come through my son, I've reconciled you to myself, and I'm going to call you a friend. And that's what the gospel is. That's what John's talking about. This is love. 
that God sent His Son on a rescue mission for you to experience His love and to be the beloved. It only comes through the person of Jesus. It only comes through Him. That's the gospel. And friends, there's a big difference because if you think God loves you because you're being good or being better, even if you've trusted in Christ, you're going to view your Christian relationship this way. Well, if I read the Bible more and if I attend an impact group and if I go to church more and if I'm doing the right things and if people seem favorable with me, then I know God's going to love me a lot more. And if those things kind of fall off and I haven't been to an impact group in a while and I haven't been to church, we've been on vacation a lot, and I haven't read my Bible, then you're going to feel like God loves you less. And that's false. Here's how God loves God loves through one way only. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you've been redeemed by His blood, you are His beloved. And if you haven't, God's wrath still remains on you. This is the truth. God has sent His Son into the world. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God remains upon him. This is not a fire and brimstone thing. I mean, the Bible makes clear that not, God did not create hell for you. He created it for the devil and his angels. But it is a real place. And all of us, from the moment that we're conceived, are on our way, directionally heading there. And if it weren't for Jesus Christ coming and being incarnate and dying on a cross and rising from the dead, all of us would go there and the Father would be totally justified in his sending us there. But while we were yet sinners... And while we were running away, and while we were giving God the finger, and while we were telling God, I'm going to live my way and do it myself, God was at work redeeming the world to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on a cross, here's what he was saying. I got a way. I got a way for you to experience my love. You never have to wonder anymore, do I care about you? Do I love about you? Do I love you? Do I care for you? Are you mine? Yes, you are. And some of you in here today, and I know, I think the biggest tragedy in our world today is that you could attend a church that teaches the truth of the scriptures like Pastor Tim does, that you could be in a place that worships and honors the Lord Jesus Christ and go through the motions so much and never experience the person of and spend an eternity separated from him for all eternity. How tragic would that be? Some of you need to repent and realize your love comes from the person of Jesus and not from your good works. Some of you need to repent and realize your love comes from Jesus and not because you're you're just not making it and God couldn't love you anymore. God loves you. He has a general love for everybody, but he's got a special, divine, worthy love for those that have named his son Lord and Savior of their lives. And that's what he's saying. And just to skip down to the end. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. He says this, if you're worried about meeting God on the judgment day, it's because you're not experiencing the beloved. I don't worry about meeting God on judgment day. If it were based on my works, I would be terrified every moment of facing God on the judgment day, even now. But I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all. I know I'm His. I could mouth that for years even after I was saved, but it took me a while to get to a place where I had ownership of. If I met Jesus face to face today, He would look at me and say, Jeff, well done, good and faithful servant. You're my boy. And to some of you who would say, you're my daughter. And I love you. And there's no qualification with that. He doesn't say, Jeff, I love you and you're my boy, but, you know, this stuff over here, that was kind of bad. Or, hey, you're my girl and you're special, but this is kind of bad. Here's what he says for those who have trusted in his son. You're mine. You're mine. I see you through the eyes of my son. This is my beloved son, Jeff, whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And how do we love? Verse 19 tells us we love because why? He first loved us. When I take ownership of where I was and what God has done in my life, 
then I'm able to love others as well. Verse 20 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what is he? He's a liar. I have a brother. <laughs> Anyone who says, I'm, I'm, I'm totally sold out for Jesus, and you got resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness and gossip in your heart, you're, you're lying. It means that you're not being consistent with what you say. Because it's demonstrated through that. Because how can you say that you love God whom you haven't seen when you can't even love your brother whom you have seen? You cannot love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love your brother. I mean, it's demonstrable. It's a litmus test. You say you love God, it'll show. You say you own the love of God, it'll be demonstrated. And if you don't have the love of God in your hearts, John's inviting you and saying, Hey, listen, here's how you can have it. It comes through the person of Jesus Christ. He offers it to you and to anyone, anywhere, of any skin color, any nationality, any city that they live in, to come give their life to Him. No matter how far you've run, no matter how far you've gone, His love never fails. Ever. He never gives up on you. He continues to reach out to you. To the moment you breathe your last breath, our Father is on a rescue mission. Jesus said He came to seek and save that which is lost. Some of you here today are trying to piece your life together. Some of you here today are trying to figure out why is my life so shaken. Um, It's because your foundation's off. It's because Jesus wants to enter into your life and take it over. And you need to respond to him in repentance by living for him and experiencing God's love in your life rather than just talking about it. And that's what he wants for you. I just want to invite you today as the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you. As you've been here, for some of you that are believers, they're like, you know what? I know that I love God, but there's this thing in my life. Maybe he's told you about a relationship. Maybe he's told you about some truth that you're, you haven't owned. I'm just going to ask you just to pray about it as we close and put that into practice. And maybe for some of you here today, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you when we pray to receive him as your Savior and do that today. Would you pray with me now?